Well, let's come back together. Those are fun. We hope those add some fun and asking good questions reminds us that we're in a, a series all about questions during this time. And I know as we come in today, I thought about warnings and that warnings are good and uh, warnings can really protect us. And yet warning labels sometimes can be a little ridiculous. And I read just this week, there was a contest to find the most ridiculous warning labels and they had prize winners for some of these. So I picked out three for you this morning. This was a past prize winner. It was for an electric razor for men, and the warning label said, never use while sleeping. But how, would you, how would you use an electric razor while sleeping? I'm not sure. And this, maybe you fell asleep during shaving or something. I don't know. A warning label on a baby stroller said, remove child before folding. Again, provides an odd picture if you're thinking about, you know, and we had our kids in strollers for many years. You know, how would you, how would you fold it with the kid in there? That's tough. And then finally, um, my, my boys like to fish. We went fishing last night, caught a few fish, actually. And this is a warning on a three-pronged allure with a three-pronged hook. Have you seen those? Those are kind of rough. It said, harmful if swallowed. So, so you're thinking, that's good for the, the humans, but the, the fish don't get that warning. So, you know, um, they have it anyway. But, well, warning labels can be really good. And today's uh, question, or today's sermon, might come with a little warning label. Don't talk about this in church. Because today's question is this, what does God say about marriage? But what we're going to really expand that to a little bit to say, what does God really say about marriage in today's culture? And so we know that culture is changing quickly, and it's a sensitive subject. Um, it's been a, a part of the rulings of the Supreme Court within the last 60 days or so. And we need to understand where we stand on the subject of marriage and relationships and what the Bible says in this area of marriage. So it kind of comes with a warning label of let's be careful and, and, and how we think about this and talk about this. And I will tell you, as I uh, prepared this week for this message, I asked some people that I'm close to to pray, some people here on staff and others, to pray that we would have the right um, tone this morning because it is a, a very sensitive subject. And wherever someone is, whatever stage of life, whether single, married, um, divorced, widowed, um, gay or straight, wherever we are, um, relationships are touchy and sometimes difficult to talk about. And I should know because I'm married and I can preach several sermons on how I've messed up in my marriage. So just wanna put that out there. I'm, I'm with you if you're there. But ultimately, the answer to the questions come from God and His Word, and then we need to decide how to interact with God and His Word on uh, the issue of marriage and relationships. So what does God say about marriage? There's a lot of it in the Scripture, in the Old Testament and the New, but we can start right in Genesis, and then we're going to look in the Gospels into Matthew. So we're going to start at Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. Genesis 2, verses 19 through 25. You can read it um, in the Bible you brought, or there's one probably in the chair in front of you, or on the screens as well. <clears throat> this is God's Word. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. 
So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. We can read about marriage as well in the New Testament in many places. Uh, Matthew 19 is one of those. And so if you would turn over there, if you have your Bible, that's going to be on the screen as well. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 6, where Jesus is conversing with Pharisees. This is God's Word. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Let's pray. Most loving God, we thank you for this time that we have to come into this place, into this sanctuary set aside for worship. We ask during our worship as we have sung songs and made offerings and prayed prayers, God, that we can also learn from you. God, that you would open our minds to the Scripture. God, that you would help me to speak the words correctly as you have given. And that, Lord, from our learning, that then we could go out and live the world in your love as you call us to do. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. So there are notes in, uh, in your bulletin today uh, on the left-hand side near the top about things we're going to be talking about. There's a lot of Scripture listed there that's not um, uh, exhaustive of all the Scripture that talks about marriage, but those are several of the passages if you'd like to read those. I'm going to highlight a few of those. I'm not going to read all of those, but there's much in the uh, New Testament about uh, and in the Bible about marriage. Well, God begins in the Bible early and, and early on in the New Testament defining the most important human relationship, one man and one woman in marriage. And this is in those very first two chapters of the book in Genesis. And then later we see Jesus quoting Genesis and his take on what uh, God the Father said through Moses in Genesis. So we see first that marriage is God's idea in Genesis 2 and that Jesus affirms marriage as one man and one woman in Matthew 19. We understand that marriage was not brought about by any one culture, but was God's idea. And God even says the man will leave his family, be united to his wife, and the two will become one. So without a lot of words, God has set the ideal standard for relationships in marriage and that it is something sacred and good and defined. In Mark and Matthew, Jesus affirms the Genesis understanding of marriage. And Jesus says the Creator made them male and female, 
And then he quotes Genesis and says, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus affirms the ideal again and supports the original definition of marriage given by God the Father in Genesis. Now, in the Bible, there's lots of other descriptions of other kinds of relationships, even romantic relationships, but God does not raise up any other romantic relationship to be God's best except for marriage as defined as one man and one woman. But despite this ideal standard that we have, and it is the ideal and it is the standard, we know that we fall short. And as humans, we fail. And so we understand that we are fallen and imperfect in marriage. So as I was looking at the Scripture this week, even these two passages, you don't have to go far. You go from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, and if you look there, it says, the added, the added title in, in my study Bible that I have over Genesis 3, it says, the fall of man. There it is. That's when a perfect world goes imperfect, and just after the first couple came to be, they sin, and ever since then, we all struggle in that sin. If we look to Matthew 19, I, I read the part where we talked about uh, Jesus really affirming marriage, but it's also a passage about divorce. The Pharisees were asking about divorce. And so in the very next verse, verse 7, Jesus talks of divorce, and He said, Moses permitted divorce because people's hearts were hard. And even in Jesus' day and today, we understand that marriages fall short of the ideal. I know that my heart can be hard as well, and uh, even in my own marriage. And when Claire and I were very first married, and I, I got her permission to tell this today, just so you know, we had a couple of really good, loud arguments, just so you know, okay? So one of the first ones, we probably hadn't been married very long at all, maybe weeks, maybe less than weeks. We argued out of, over how to load the dishes in the dishwasher because there was a correct way and an incorrect way. And so we had a very loud argument over that. You might say that's crazy, but we did. Soon after that, we had another really good, loud argument over the television in our house. Now, I grew up in a home where the television was kind of always on as background noise. Uh, Claire doesn't watch TV that much. And so I thought it would be like it was in my home, where we would always have the TV on. Claire actually wanted to talk with me since we hadn't been married very long. And as we argued about this, I think one of my points was I said something like, honey, you know, I'm talented. I can talk to you and watch TV at the same time. <laughs> and I think at that point even looked away from her to the television. So you might guess that I lost that argument, and rightfully so, because in a good marriage, we need to remove the distractions so that we can actually converse and talk with each other. Now, I'll also tell you, in truth, we've had many other arguments which are over more important things uh, than the dishwasher or TV. So if you're a struggler in relationships, um, I have been there with you as well. But because we struggle in relationships, should we give up on marriage? Or should we accept mediocrity in marriage? Or should we look for an out when things don't go right? Should we look for fulfillment in other places? I believe no, we need to fight for our marriages where they are, and for the sanctity of marriage, for how God defines marriage, and what God says a good marriage should look like. Those are things worth fighting for as Christians and just as individuals. 
And I'd like to look at two passages which talk a little bit more about marriage um, in the New Testament, which I think help us as well. First uh, is Ephesians 5 and then Hebrews 13. In Ephesians 5, it says that marriage is about love and submission, servant leadership, caring, and unity. That's in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And then also specifically, it says marriage is about Christ and the church in verse 32. And if you even back up one verse, if you, I started at verse 22. If you start at verse 21, Paul says we need to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We hear sometimes in traditional Christian language or churches that wives are to submit to their husband, and it, it is in this passage. But before that, it says to submit to each other. And why are we to submit? It's in reverence for Christ in a relationship with Christ had with His people and with the church. So we learn in this passage that marriage is about honoring one another. It's about servant leadership. It's about leading with looking at serving the other person in marriage. And it is about submission. And I think I learned about this oftentimes when we think about our vows in marriage, you know, in sickness and in health, for better, for worse. How do I treat someone? How do I treat my spouse when they really need me? Um, submission, I think a good definition, it can be defined as a loving acknowledgement of another's value as a person, a loving acknowledgement of another's value as a person. It can also help with the distinguishing roles of marriage and cooper cooperation with each other in roles. You know, as husbands and wives, I have certain gifts and talents that I'm good at. Claire's it, good at other things. And we figure out what are our certain roles that we need to fill, and then we support each other in those roles within our household and within our, our family. As we do that, we build unity, and then we build trust, and we can build intimacy as we learn to trust each other. Those things build, are building blocks which build on each other. And then our marriages... I hope, can begin to resemble Christ's love for the church, which says in verse 32, Christ's love is an example of how to treat all of us or how we treat all others in relationships. So if we step outside the box of marriage just for a minute and we think about how Christ loved the church, that He would give everything for the church, that's how we're called to treat all of our relationships, um, looking out for the interest of the other person first. I had a really good example um, years ago. It was actually right here in this church. It was with a family about our age and was with a couple. They had been married for a little bit longer than we had, and it's a family that's now moved away to another state several years ago. But his wife at the time, the husband was a friend of mine, his wife was, was very sick, and she needed a lot of care during that time. And I remember actually meeting with him to pray for his wife and it was very moving because he requested that. He wanted to gather together with some people to pray for his wife because she was sick. And then I remember after we finished praying, I remember complimenting him, saying, you're, you're a really good husband. You know, I need to follow your example. And I'll never forget that he said something like this. He said, well, Scott, he says, marriage is not 50-50. Marriage is 100%, 100%. He goes, I'm 100% in with my wife. And right now she's sick. She can't give to me the way that I can give to her, but she will. And even if she can't, I'm still going to be 100% all in for her. He said, that's what marriage is all about. And I, I thought that was a great example, and I've never forgotten that, because not only could he say it, he was showing it in the way that he lived. And so we know, too, when we said Christ loved the church, and he's our example, 
that Christ is 100% in with us. And he proved that with his life here on earth and then his death in which he gave his life for us. And we can trust in him to help us then in our earthly relationships in which we need his help. In Hebrews 13, um, like Ephesians, it talks a little bit about marriage. It says marriage is about honor and purity, trust, and God. Verse 4 specifically has three really key points there in verse 4 in Hebrews 13. It says marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. First, it says marriage should be honored by all. It's a statement, I believe, for us and for our culture to honor marriage as God intended it to be. It says the marriage bed should be kept pure. Faithfulness in marriage builds trust and intimacy. And those are qualities which resemble the kind of um, loving, trusting relationship that we can have with Jesus. And it brings us closer together when we have faithfulness in marriage. Then it says, God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. And I understand that to read that it's not my place to judge them, that that's God's place to judge those who are struggling in that area in their life. I can stand for biblical truth, but when I read in the Scripture, I find that God is the judge. Um, Jesus even said, judge not unless you too be judged. It's His role to judge others' intentions and behavior. Now, for Christians, though, we can, as friends, as spouses, help hold each other accountable. When we see someone that we trust, that we're close to, or we see our spouse, and we see they're going down a path they shouldn't be, it is our role to help hold them accountable in friendship or in love and relationship. We can do that. Still we know. Um, well, first, as we get back in Hebrews 13, verse 4 is, uh, is a powerful verse. And then though we get to verses 5 and 6, and we read there that it all goes back to God. It says, God will never leave us nor forsake us, that He's our helper, that we can turn to God when we are hurting. So whatever our relationships may be like and wherever they're struggling, we can always find help in God. There are some places then, though, that we fall short. And we, you know, we can joke about the, you know, the arguments that I had when, I, when we were first married or different things where we fall short. But there are places in our lives and our relationships where we fall short. One of the things that Jesus talks about is divorce. And we understand that God is against divorce, I believe, because God understands the hurt and pain that comes through divorce. But God certainly forgives anyone and everyone who reaches out in faith to God. We also see in culture from Bible times to today that when people aren't fulfilled in marriage, they look elsewhere for fulfillment. It could be everything from filling up the holes in your relationships with other idols, idols maybe that you have or that I have, hobbies, uh, work, even our children, raising up our kids above our marriages. Or it could go as far as sins of the heart or affairs. Sins of the heart, things that uh, some men struggle with like lust or the use of pornography. We fail when we try to fill up the holes in our lives with other things than the things they're supposed to be filled up. And ultimately, we're going to talk about this in a minute, the ultimate fulfillment comes when we fill the holes in our life with Jesus. He's the only one that can completely fulfill us. 
We understand in Scripture that, that God is clear that sexual expression outside of marriage is a sin. And in today's culture and even in the church, um, it's really all around us in the news and on the internet and everywhere else, there is much talk of a same-gender marriage. But again, we see in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament in several places, that all sexual behavior, uh, including homosexual behavior, outside of marriage is sin. In our culture and sometimes the church, we can be influenced, I think, or tempted to raise up one sin above other sins. And I know this happens a lot because this is an issue, especially with same-gender marriage that's in the news all the time right now. But I believe at least in a couple of places that God says that we're not to hold up one sin above other sins. In fact, in uh, Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul addresses that. And so these were sins that uh, those cultures in Rome and in Corinth were dealing with. It's not something new to us today. But Paul addresses them. In fact, in Romans 1 and in Romans 2. In fact, in Romans 1, Paul says, those who do not glorify God or give thanks to God are foolish. You know, and, and in fact, they, they've, they've put other things up as God. And when they do, people who fail with putting God first may engage in sexual sin. But also, he lists other things that they also sin and that we struggle with. Gossip, envy, murder, arrogance, boasting, disobeying parents, and other sins. And then 1 Corinthians, Paul says, along with the sexually immoral, those who are sexually immoral are thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers. So I was looking at that list late this week, and I said, you know, I could go down and put a check mark by a bunch of those where I've been in my life or sins that I struggle with, and um, I am no better than anyone else who is struggling with any other kind of sin, that I know, too, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. And that's the place we all need to be instead of raising up one sin or one behavior among other sins. We also understand that God promotes, and we've really said this in different ways, God promotes holy sexuality, that really our choices for anyone, wherever you are, are marriage or celibacy and singleness. Now, we also understand that sexual desire is not the same as sexual behavior. You know, we can be heterosexual, heterosexual or homosexual and have certain desires, but in obedience to God, we don't have to act on those desires. And while it is difficult, there are many places in our lives where we must choose not to act on certain desires, and there are places where we need to act on other good desires. Christopher Ewan, who's a professor at Moody Bible Institute, says that God promotes this holy sexuality, that the choice for anyone who walks on the earth is faithfulness in marriage or celibacy and singleness, that we all have the same choices. So what about singleness? What about those who aren't married? Because that's a huge part of, of our church and our culture. Paul addresses that as well. I think he does a really good job of that in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, you don't need to be married to be fulfilled in life. God wants what is best for you. And in this passage, Paul said it's good for those who are married to stay married. But he also says, now to the unmarried and widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. He goes on to explain that sometimes people who are single have more freedom and more time to devote to their faith and devote to service to God, as Paul did, who was a single man. 
and that they have that without uh, having to worry about the obligations of, of a wife or family. We also know that Jesus lived a celibate, single life on earth for 33 years, and yet he dealt with the temptations that we do, but he put his obedience to God the Father first. And in that, Jesus is our hope. Pastor Rick McKinley says this. He says, Jesus, Jesus, not our sexuality, is the hope of your soul just like he's the hope of my soul. Jesus is with us when we fail, when we doubt, when we fear, and when we are lonely. So, in Scripture, we know these things. God wants what is best for you. He doesn't want anything less than the best. Sexuality is best expressed in marriage between one man and one woman. According to God, everything else falls short of that. And our identity is not wrapped up in our sexuality. It's not wrapped up in in that part of us. It's our identity in Christ, who we are in Christ. When we belong to Him as our Savior and the Lord and leader of our life and as our ultimate example in relationships with others. So, what do we do about it? We've been reading Scripture, you know, both from Genesis into the New Testament and Matthew and Ephesians, Hebrews and other places about marriage and relationships. What do we do about this? Well, culture and the change in culture gives us the opportunity to be ambassadors for God, and God calls us to stand for His truth with His grace. I get a magazine, and it comes also in a blog format called Theology Matters, and Theology Matters had some articles about the Supreme Court rulings um, back from the end of June or first part of July. And they quoted in uh, one of the Supreme Court rulings, which struck down part of the Defense of Marriage Act, which affirms one man and one woman as a married couple. They said that those who wrote the Defense of Marriage Act were motivated by malice. And it also said in this majority opinion of the Supreme Court justices that those who support acts like the Defense of Marriage Act we're trying to demean, degrade, harm, and humiliate others. And I don't know about you, but I try as a Christian not to do those things. If I am being, being degrading, humiliating, or harming others, then I am in the wrong. And if I do that, if my words or actions do that, I am welcome for people to call me on that. And I need to apologize for being humiliating or harming to others. But if by supporting traditional marriage of one man and one woman as God defines it, and in that it's our goal to show love and kindness while pointing to God's best, then we are on the right track. So how can we be ambassadors for God in all this? We can live vibrant, joyful lives, whether we are single or married. You know, when you see that person out there, and, and, uh, and for many of us as Christians, we see those people, they're joyful, they're excited about their faith, and we, wanna, we want that too for our lives. What if other, other people in our lives who don't know Christ yet, they see that in us, vibrant, joyful, excited lives. That's the kind of ambassadors that we want to be. We don't need to be ashamed of the gospel, but to never use the gospel to shame others. We can stand on God's truth without using it in any way as a, a weapon or tool to shame others. That's not our goal. We can take a stand on God's Word, also understanding that God's Word, and specifically Jesus' teaching, teaches us things like to turn the other cheek, to love and pray for our enemies, and to help those who are hurting. 
We had a session meeting Tuesday night, and our session in this church exists of, uh, consists of 12 elders, and right now me as pastor, and we had a great session meeting, and in the devotional at the start of our session meeting, every meeting starts with a devotional out of Scripture, one of our elders expressed that there's a lot of disunity in our country, in our denomination, and sometimes even in our church. One of the areas of disunity in our country right now is over same-gender marriage. But God says, and he shared this Tuesday night, God says consistently in the New Testament, the strategy for disunity is love. The strategy for disunity is love. The strategy for disunity or for hate or for sin or for brokenness is God's love. It's God's love lived out through each of us as we live it in our lives, as we help show that love to others. That is the answer um, for the questions that we have. Let's pray together.